Guardian Unlimited. Hello. Hello, I'm Pascal Wise and I'm Lucy Porter and welcome to the final heckle from the Edinburgh Fringe. Today we are joined by a comedian, writer, actor, bon viveur, Stephen K. Amos. Hello. Hi there Lucy, how are you? Very good. And we're also joined by actor, comedian and writer Carrie Quinlan. Carrie, you're having an unusual festival experience in that you haven't got your own show up this year. What are you up to? Um, I'm doing various bits and pieces. I'm doing a, a thing called the early edition, which is uh, 5 to 12 in the morning, which is an ungodly hour for Edinburgh, so it's the equivalent of, well, 5 in the morning. <laughs> but it's fun, and I'm doing a show called Book Club. And also with us today is The Guardian's Leo Benedictus. Hello, Leo. Hello, Pascal. Did we ever ask you if you have Roman dress back at home? <laughs> <laughs> it's the most beautiful no, no. thing. It's, it's Leo Benedictus, <laughs> the fourth. So in today's show, we'll be exploring the dark arts of comedy poster design. We'll examine the difference between comedy for adults and comedy for kids. We'll hear Murray Lachlan Young's opinion on the Edinburgh Fringe. Plus we prod an exploratory finger into the fundament of comedy and find out what exactly makes us laugh. <laughs> Before that, though, we're going to have some lunch. And uh, here on the Guardian table, we've got a magnificent spread of, ooh, bread, tomatoes, salad. Grusted. And have some olives. Pie. This ooh. is the first time I've been... Multiple donuts. ...within reaching distance of healthy food. That's a nice change. I am having some vegetable crisps. That's how healthy I am, but although it is the first time I've eaten for three weeks. <laughs> I've been standing in off-license with Glen Wall many a time, smoking cigarettes menacingly, waiting for 9am. And actually, while people are getting up and getting their breakfast milk and everything, and we're going, sell us the beer! If it's gone well and everyone slaps you on the back, it's like party time, and, you know, it's the best party in the world, the Edinburgh Festival. It's like into the bar, into the show, into the bar, into the show. I'm up until about 5 and then get up at 12. I tend to have breakfast just before I go to bed, I discover. Usually start the day with, uh, with bananas, berries and just soy in a bowl. Make porridge. I'm, I'm a big porridge lover. So that's that's the first thing. Porridge. Maybe sushi for uh, for lunch. Two cans of Red Devil. <laughs> I have a major caffeine habit. Let's be honest, Scottish food. You know, you don't go to Scotland for the food, do you? It's like you don't go to France for the marmalade. Went for an amazing run today on three hours sleep. I've, I've done a documentary for a couple of hours today. I've been to the bank. I've been running all over town. It, it is bad here. I mean, you know, some people say, oh, uh, you know, I know it's bad when I start drinking before 12 o'clock. I remember one year going out to get the newspapers, and the next thing I do remember is I was in my pants in the Alien exhibition in Glasgow. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, drink and comedy are inextricably bound together. And, of course, there are a million you know, man goes into a pub jokes enough to last the rest of time in the year 2000 on a 46 hour drinking binge during the festival i lost my pancreas and my kidney to that very drinking binge i mean as a compare i used to try and follow what is known as hegley's law that you should always be one pint less pissed than the average member of the audience uh, which gave quite a lot of leeway. Omnibus vegetable crisps. <laughs> exercise. You can't help but get quite a lot of exercise in Edinburgh. I was listening to Jason Manford, the comedian, this morning. He said he's been here walking around for two weeks. He still hasn't gone downhill. Huge practitioner of the rowing machine. Which this week I knocked 14 seconds off of my uh, eight-kilometre best, which is uh, I'm down to uh, 30.22. So I don't drink anymore. It's just uh, you know, vegetable crisps and crack cocaine now. 
the voices of Arthur Smith, Brendan Burns, Andre Vincent and the incomprehensibly driven Craig Campbell. Does any of those lifestyles ring a bell with you, Lucy? I'm much more of the uh, binge drinking and lying around a bit school than Craig Campbell's terrifying. But you do see Craig Campbell running around with, like, he does army-style training with big packs on his back. He's a madman. It's extraordinary, this wild Canadian beast of a man (laughs) hurtling through the streets of Edinburgh, people moving out of his way like some kind of (laughs) Moses figure. I don't know how he does it, because I can barely wake up in the morning, let alone walk. What time do you get up of of a day in Edinburgh? Of a day, I probably get up about... Midday. And go to um, bed at? Between one and four in the morning, but I don't do breakfast. I probably have one meal a day and it's not necessarily a healthy meal. Do you drink at the festival? Do I drink? Mm. I do drink, but not tea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's be honest, we all drink. <laughs> We've um, all had a drink already, let's be honest. Not, We're uh, all uh, business right now. <laughs> yeah. but, but not to excess, to be honest. Yeah. The two nights I did drink to excess, I threw up in the toilets of a particular venue <laughs> and blocked the entire plumbing system <laughs> and was helped oh. out of the venue by three members of staff. That was both nights you did that twice. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Was that when they uh, closed the venue because there wasn't any water? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> they closed the toilets, the toilets alone. <laughs> I find I always come up with the best of intentions. Mm. And then uh, at the end of Edinburgh, I pack my swimming costume and running shoes and running kit <laughs> and bicycle away um, in a sort of drunken haze. It's yeah. very similar at the, the Guardian House, actually. I remember the first week the fridge would be filled with fresh peppers and onions and gradually as the shop gets done each week the quantity of jaffa cakes that is put in the, <laughs> in the cupboard gets larger and larger do you have to stay sober if you're reviewing things though do you feel it's no i think it's actually incumbent on me not to because mm-hmm. if i go and see comedy for fun then i usually would have a drink or two yeah. so i think i sort of have to have a drink or two as well i will take you to task with that <laughs> <laughs> the last thing i want is a drunken reviewer in my audience <laughs> I was speaking to another reviewer who says that the fear of the impending drink binge, he now worries like four weeks before the festival, he's kind of sweating there back in London thinking, oh my God, what am I going up to? Planning the detox for afterwards, is yeah. that's what a lot of people do. Yeah. Anyone actually cooked a meal? Would I roasted the chicken. Well, maybe what we should do is let's, before the end of the festival, let's all have a big, nice roast dinner that... Because you're a very good cook, Pascal. So. You know, is that official? Well, I'll take. I'll t- thank you for your lovely offer. I'll be there Sunday. What time? I'll be getting a train out of town today. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest heckle I've ever received came from a guy who's about six. He just very politely put up his hand in his precocious way and said, "Excuse me, does this get good soon?" That, I believe, is the most honest piece of criticism that there's ever been in the history of art. I'm surrounded by a table of comedians and I've got one question for you all. What makes comedy work? I have no idea, but our producer Francesca Panetta went to meet Jos Huben, the man behind the show The Art of Laughter, to see if he could explain all. Do you have, do we have the choice to laugh? The show is like a mock masterclass. First of all, they're stressed. The audience learns about what produces laughter, especially in the body. The performer, i.e. me, is stressed as well. It talks about our sense of dignity, our sense of balance, our sense of adequacy or inadequacy when we perform certain tasks. One of my favourite bits is when he describes how we talk about things with where we put our hands on the body and that the lower down we go, the less important it is and the higher the hands, the higher the drama. So he throws his hands in the air and says... Usually we don't throw our hands in the air when we see the postman in the morning. We don't say, oh, the postman! The postman! <laughs> it's very 
basic stuff. It's a bit cheeky if you want to tell an audience now you're going to laugh, but they do. Do you think it makes people see comedy in a different way? Do people want laughter to be deconstructed for them? They find it revealing. They find it refreshing. I don't deconstruct. I show them what a construction is behind it. And that's edifying. It's nice. I feel people feel supported by that. I think I'll be a comedian because now I know what makes people laugh, you know. (laughs) I will definitely be looking at people walking up and down the street and whether they are... And tripping. (laughs) In fact, I'll be practising my tripping on the way home. Lucy, I love the show, and I saw it with you. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that halfway through, you whipped out a notepad and started scribbling things down. I absolutely you... did, yeah. Because I didn't know Jos Huben. Yeah, he's one of the guys that set up Theatre de Complicité. And he's very much looking into the kind of physical side of comedy. Yeah, because kind of I, you know, I mean, I came to comedy from writing, and I've much, got much more of a writer's mentality, I think, than a performer's mentality. And I've had to learn performing. started listening to it and went, hang on, this is gold, I'm going to get my notebook out. So what did you actually write down? The hands thing and things about status and how to increase or, or diminish your status with the audience. And so I did go out that night to do my own show, and I walked out with my hands on my hips and <laughs> kind of just carried myself quite differently after and having seen it. Well, I think so. Oh, that's hands. quite an interesting point because um, I haven't seen this show, but I did speak to uh, Tom Stade and he was going, Steve, Steve, what's up with the hands? Why are you going goo 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 goo? Just own the stage. Put the jazz hands away. And it was quite interesting because uh, that night I actually went, I walked on the stage and I stood further back than I would normally stand and the audience came to me. Yeah. It was extraordinary. And so I, what I now do um, is I will do things in, with my physical self that I know is going to get some sort of reaction. Yeah. Like I'll sit on a stool when I'm bringing the whole thing down mm-hmm. and not do a joke. And when it's time to go bang, I'll stand up and then suddenly the audience are lifted. Carrie, do you think there are absolute things that will always make us laugh? Dead certs. I think there are. Falling over has always been, has already been taught. I saw someone trip over yesterday and it's the funniest thing I've seen in Edinburgh this year. Um, Breaking wind, always funny, um, unquestionably. Um, Midgets, funny. Um, I think those are, are you allowed to say that on The Guardian or are we too liberal? I don't know. Um, it's, it's the difference between fiction and non-fiction. When something's happening for real, it's funny because you know no one's planning it, whereas you guys have a terrible time because we know you've worked it all out for hours before you turn out trying. You'd be surprised, though. <laughs> many people in the audience come up to me after and go, oh, I can't believe you just stand there and just make things up yeah. on the spot. So the magic is, is may, may have been lost for you guys, yeah. you cynics, yeah. <laughs> but for the audience members, oh, my God. People come up to me and go, well, can I see you tomorrow? Will you be doing different stuff? And I have to say to them, possibly not. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. There is the perfect funny story in the papers, though, this week, that um, the Segway, which is this gyroscopic um, oh, yeah, form, mode of transport mm. that cannot you cannot fall over on because it's perfectly balanced. Someone's fallen off it, which is... <laughs> funny in itself but then it just grows because it was Piers Morgan who <laughs> fell off it and he broke two ribs and I don't think there's anything in the world funnier than that. Three ribs. So it's good. If that beautiful, beautiful, on camera isn't it? Frame, Absolutely beautiful. This is like the grand unifying theory of comedy. We have discovered the ultimate joke. It's Piers Morgan falling <laughs> off a segue. I mean we can just close the discussion there. there. We've he solved He out a tiny fart as he We'll dub that in later. The heckle. Leo, you have been, during that discussion, I noticed that you were a little bit jaded about comedy. Yeah, bored of it now. Yeah. <laughs> is, is there anything funny you've seen during the festival? 
I saw a show the other day. It's always, in a way, most fun when you see a show where you, you don't know anything about it and uh, and it does actually make you laugh more than you expected. I saw a show called Tommy and the Weeks the other day, yeah. uh, which which did make me laugh. Quite Tom Bell and Ed Weeks. That's right, yes. They do a sort of surreal sketch thing, which, um, you know, there's, there's probably a hundred others like them doing a similar thing in a not funny way and that's made me laugh quite a lot. Excellent. I think we've got a bit of it. I think we can hear... Yes, yeah, I think we can hear a clip from that show now. Ahem! Hey, Foxy, how you doing, buddy? You're not good, actually, Aesop. <laughs> Read your book, buddy. Aesop's Fables. Oh, no, oh, no. The hell? I told you that stuff in confidence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all those times we were at the pub and I was spilling my heart out about the ant and the grasshopper. You've written it all down. You know, I ch- I, you know I've changed the, the name. Yeah, you changed the name. You changed the name from Fox to The, the Fox. Fox. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie, are there any particular shows that have really caught your attention? Yeah, I've seen some really nice things, actually. I saw Tom Basden at the Underbelly, which is... Uh, his is a lovely show in which he doesn't speak. I, I'm sure it'll be, it, that's not the reason it's so lovely. But it's um, he, he sings songs and he plays all sorts of instruments and he has, at one point, a, a cymbal. He hits a cymbal by wearing a, a cycling helmet with a, a cymbal-hitting thing <laughs> on it and just headbutts this cymbal. And uh, it, it, there's something just so simple and charismatic and just winning about the show. Still to come in today's programme, what does your poster say about you? And what does Murray Lachlan Young have to say about The Fringe? But next up, we take a look at the growing number of comedians who choose to supplement their main shows with gigs for kids earlier on in the day. One such comedian is Howard Reed. We got him together with Kids TV presenter turned stand-up Kirsten O'Brien to discuss the relative merits of performing for children and adults. Howard. Yes, Kirsten. I want to ask about your kids' show. Yes. I think I might be in love with Little Howard off of the poster. Have you met Little Howard? No, you just, but I want to. Tell He's me about him. He's the world's first and only six-year-old animated interactive stand-up comedian. The correct response to that is, ooh. Ooh. Sorry. Thank you. Yeah, I've done shows with him since 2002 for adults, and I've just recently started doing it for kids. Uh, how and it's going markedly better. <laughs> so... In doing it for kids rather than adults, is it as simplistic as just taking all the it, swearing and rude bits out? It's got more complicated and less complicated. There used to be a part of the show where Little Howard would respond to questions from the audience, like, what's your name, where you're from, and could tell jokes about what jobs they did. But obviously kids don't have jobs. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and also it used to be based on the fact that most adult audiences always ask the same questions. So every other show someone would always ask, do you have a girlfriend? And kids never ask the same questions. It's completely random. I've never had the same question twice. I had a little three-year-old girl on a tour show recently just ask, what does little Howard's hair feel like? (gasps) And so I got her up on stage and she felt the screen and she went, it's soft. You can't predict that. Kids are notoriously difficult to please. Do you find it more scary if the kids aren't liking it or, you know, does that ever happen? I've kind of cheated because I've got a cartoon boy and kids instantly like something when you've got a cartoon boy who's being rude to an adult. I might try that as a technique. Yeah, bring a cartoon board. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it, it has Why didn't I think of that? I've just got a massive sausage. Massive sausage? Yeah. I've got a six foot four pencil. Have you? Yes. I've got a fridge that I wear and the front opens. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. With chilled drinks massive in. props are brilliant. Yeah, that's, that's all the you answer. Need. And this is for an adult show, is it? Yes. Yeah. Because so, I went the other way. Mm-hmm. I've come from kids' telepresenting and decided 
I wanted to tell all the stuff I'm not allowed to say on kids telly and all the ridiculous stories that have gone on over the years mm -hmm. and so mine's don't bring your kids no under 16s and a couple were waiting outside the other day and said can I have your autograph I was like yes how old are you 13 you're not coming to my show yes and I had to sneakily go and get them booted out which I felt awful about but you know I, I say rude words and I don't want children to see that I how, how are you finding the transition I'm feeling liberated Fantastic, to be yeah. honest yeah it's just nice to be able to talk to adults and it's quite nice to bust out of that mould and say your first rude word which I say within minutes <laughs> and just have that reaction of oh right buckle in we're off then <laughs> uh, just from the off really yeah I'm finding it quite liberating is your show is it a plan to move away from kids presenting it's about changing that perception because it's well documented when you're a kids presenter you are then officially in a pigeonhole and it's mm, going to take yeah. you one heck of a battle that, that's why I to get about out that. I, yeah. I, I wouldn't want to do that I think I after 11 years I'm so embedded in people's mentality as a kids mm. presenter that I needed to really shake that up and short of the Richard Bacon route <laughs> yeah. or the breasts out in FHM you know I, neither of those things appeal so this although the most difficult route arguably um, mm. I've gone for that as my sort of route of I'm not just that girl that's covered in gunge yeah. cackling like a lunatic this is what I'm also capable yeah. of hopefully that's what the show will demonstrate good luck breaking free from the shackles thank of you childhood if nothing else I will be back next year with a small cartoon boy yes <laughs> alright hands up who's done a kid show me <laughs> now Lucy would you like to tell us all about what you did on mm. your show I mean, I've only done shows for teenagers, really, sort of 11 and up. And that's um, surprisingly similar to doing comedy for grown-ups, except that you do have that thing where you start doing a routine and then you realise that there's a very rude word or an incredibly dark sexual concept to come. So then you have to back out and try and do something else. Because kids now as well do grow up quicker. I sound like, oh, don't they? Oh, don't, don't they? I tell you. Yeah. But yeah, it seems like they sort of relate to most things that adults relate to. Well, I, yeah. I have actually done. Um, James Campbell, another friend of uh, ours, uh, runs one of London's only comedy for kids clubs, yeah. and they start at literally months old mm -hmm. to about eight, nine. And he phoned me up and said, "Oh, will you come and do this?" And I, in a drunken haze, said yes. And I got there. And I just thought, "What on earth am I going to do? How am I going to talk to these children?" And the parents were there, so I made a conscious decision to work on two levels. It's really funny because at that age, they don't get much, but it's you and the adults that are the ones kind of thinking for them. And I'm going, OK, I can't use that word there, I can't use that word there. And then you find yourself using another word that means nothing, but the kids laugh, and they laugh in all the wrong places, and it completely throws you. But it also, what it does, and it gives you another take on your own jokes. They laugh in all the wrong places, but they laugh collectively which I hadn't even considered. Yeah, yeah. So they're getting something that I didn't. And so I go back and I think, maybe there's two laugh lines here. Mm. Maybe I should use the word winky instead of cock. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Carrie, have you ever considered doing a kid's show? Uh, yes and no. I'd love to, but it fills me with absolute terror. Because I'm one of those sort of entertaining aunties and all my nieces and nephews think I'm hilarious. But I think that might be the kids' comedy equivalent of your mate in the pub, yes. who's very funny, and you should go on the stage and is then awful. Something that Stuart Lee mentions in his show is a little bit about doing comedy for kids and he says that one of the big bonuses actually is that when they heckle, they put their hands up first so they ask permission <laughs> to interrupt you and uh, abuse you. <laughs> so you can just choose to reject the heckle if you like. Because they have no real concept of we're an audience, you're a man talking, sometimes they talk to you for a bit too long. <laughs> you know, they think they're part of the show. And there's a joke that I wrote myself which actually, when I did the joke at the Comedy for Kids... Before I got to my punchline, 
a kid in the audience did the punchline. And I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you the joke, and then you'll see why it was very funny. Um, I go, um, I did this show a little while ago, and I asked the audience if there's anybody here from overseas. And somebody said, and this four or five year old went, you! <laughs> and that the entire place just erupted. Parents and children alike. And I was just in tears. Because I thought, just don't expect this from a four year old. And that's Can a joke. Can you imagine their parents are sort of going, oh God. <laughs> yes. yeah. Unless they're sitting there going, nice one, son. You said it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you told him. <laughs> but that was so not meant with any malice or anything at all, but it was. Well, sometimes Just. you get that with drunk adults. Don't you? Do you think you can equate sober children and drunk adults? <laughs> <laughs> which, which would you rather play for? Children. Yeah. I am in a female double act who do uh, Victorian characters, and uh, we once had a guy shout out, get your tits out, to which I replied, you wouldn't like it, sir. And he said, not you, the other one. When you come to Edinburgh during the festival, one of the things that you can't escape from is the walls of gurning faces peering down at you as posters are plastered all over the city. But do these cheesy grins have any effect? The Guardian's Maxi Salvinska went to find out. What about these posters here in front of us? What do you make of these? OK, so it's got a woman with bright crimson lipstick on and her bosom's very out there. I think that's deliberate. It's just a lady sitting, looking at you kind of... Come to my show, please. I don't know what I'm going to do if you don't come. <laughs> Stars all over it, which is a clear sign that they're desperate, really, for you to come. It's too confusing, the rest of the thing. I only want to know what's on today. So therefore, I would much rather big posters saying exactly what's on today. End of story. And then tomorrow, I'll look at the next thing. And also, we've been coming for 40-odd years. To the festival? Yes. Have posters changed? Yes, a lot time? more now than ever there were. From being non-existent <laughs> in our day to <laughs> the myriad that you see today, yeah. Do any of the posters over there appeal to you? Well, I can't really see them without my glasses, and I'm too far away, <laughs> so... Lucy Porter sprawled across a bed, sticks in my mind, and I don't know why. Um, <laughs> There's one there, it's Tony Lee, and I, I'm sorry, it's probably an amazing show, but it looks really scary. The poster puts me right off. It's a bit aggressive and like some sort of motorbike rally, which isn't yeah. really my thing. Some <laughs> WWF wrestling or something like that. It looks like the sort of thing that your 12-year-old son would <laughs> nag you to go to. So do posters make any difference at all to what you go and see during the festival? No. No, because they're kind we, of everywhere. We don't even so. look at them. I don't, I don't think it makes all that much difference at all. But it's nice to see the council going round and spraying them all off and then the next morning they're straight back up again. Some sort of eternal cycle of cleaning up the posters. A great poster wouldn't necessarily make me go see the show but a bad one would normally make me not go. But as the festival rolls on I do tend to get my attention caught by the posters that have got the reviews stuck on them. A lot of stand-up posters they just look sneering and self-centred and self-satisfied. Frank Skinner though can get to, I mean he's just he looks like Satan. Someone should draw a couple of horns onto his head. He's about as funny as caught death anyway. He's a bit like so. Johnny Rotten, actually, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. Oh, Johnny Rotten had a lot more talent, though. That's the thing. I think I would like to see lunch with the Hamiltons. <laughs> Why is that? It's got a good picture. Describe the picture for us. Um, <laughs> it's two men in a bathtub. <laughs> That is one of the 
cruelest packages I've ever heard. Two men in a bag. <laughs> Lovely little voice. Fantastic. Stephen, is your poster funnier than Cot Death? <laughs> I, I should certainly hope so. Um, my poster this year is very over the top because last year's poster I was naked sitting across a sofa. And how else do you top a naked poster? But it also meant that people came to the show expecting to see a naked man. And I had to tell them it was merely a metaphor that was bearing all. And I, when I was trying to think of this year's poster, I just thought, actually, let's just go over the top, put more clothes on. So I'm wearing a Victorian dress and a pink wig. <laughs> but I still have my moustache and beard. Hilarious touch. Um, but of course, I'm getting lots of transvestites <laughs> coming to the show. Do you get people commenting on your poster? Yes, I've had people say things like, "It looks like RuPaul, uh, Marie Antoinette, mm. Ian Wright." Uh, <laughs> but Carmen Miranda's the one people go, oh, "It looks like Carmen Miranda," which kind of nicely fits into the show. It was quite fortunate that it kind of worked in that way because so I could. Intentional, but you happened to. No, have... so I look like a genius. <laughs> Carrie, any posters that have actually persuaded you to go to the show just because the poster's great? I agree with the woman on there who said that she doesn't think a poster would persuade her to go to a show, but it would put her off. Actually, posters make quite a big impression on my choices of which shows I go and see. The reason for that is I suppose I'm in a different position from most of the festival goers in that I know I'm going to have to go and see a lot of shows, whatever happens, and see show, 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 and I'm just sifting through stuff I've never heard of and people I don't know anything about. And so anything that just makes me laugh, I'll probably go and give it a go, you know, and it's not easier said than done, but it probably does make a difference. I just think it's hard to Much pull off writing. a proper... I mean, can you think of any proper gags on posters? Can you think of any that have worked? Brendan Burns this year has attempted quite a high-concept poster, at the very least, with That's a sort true. of a gag in it. So I suppose now this is offensive. Yeah, and yes. the, the poster is The poster him. is so ugly. <laughs> <laughs> that image of him, where well, I think he's blacked up, he doesn't look blacked up. He looks ill. He yeah, just, just looks dark. I, I love Brendan to bits. He's a good friend. If he really wanted to go to task with that, he should have been on the poster in a KKK outfit with, with a dead baby in his hat. You know, really go for it. I think Brendan Byrne shouldn't hold back quite so much. Yeah, really don't hold back. I think next year Stephen Cave should design so his poster. No, no, I think, you, yeah. Follow through with what you're saying. Go for it. Lack of quotes is quite important because it's endless. You will ha have posters with 15 quotes from things you've never heard of mm. that are only actually in existence Something for three and a com. half weeks. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. The currency of stars in quotes is like Zimbabwe's. It's just yeah, totally it's gone down the toilet. What happens is that the assembly rooms have got this massive wall of posters, all of them four stars, four stars, four stars, four stars, five stars occasionally here and there. And then there'll be one or two posters with no stars on them at all. And those are the ones that catch my eye. I think, God, they must be terrible. Mm -hmm. Well, um, people, there, are, there are certain comics up this year who have got loads of stars on their posters anyway from like previous years and I remember that one of the most shameful things I did, I'm prepared to admit it, years and years ago was I didn't get reviewed and so for some reason I put five stars a Scotsman, thinking that would be hilarious. <laughs> it wasn't. It was just the most rubbish thing. But that thing about having um, quotes and things on it, punters believe it. That's the, that's a fact. Don't believe the hype. Don't believe the posters. Just listen Trust to the Guardian. Trust us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh, move on for our. This is this is a big and sad moment. The oh last gosh, it's the item. Last item on our on last, the last heckle. heckle. Well, it's a good one. We commissioned the poet Murray Lachlan Young to write us a piece about the fringe. Hopefully, it's in Scots. But do hang on in there because we have persuaded him to translate it afterwards. Three lammas, deedy, kittle eye, they jope, yawn, sleek it, smidden, and the muckle sump, mack, collie, shangy, fussle, and dee, lope upon all the reekies, hurt dee, jug, and lump. 
in Guinea's coming muckle spring, to pech and sprachel the fringed creed was to nebby folk who dilka when they hing, skilp heed, and ah, the deep ash fin and scream. From early August do they unpredictably spill, O sly, determined, and the very stupid make commotion, whistle, and do leap upon old Edinburgh's bottom breasts and gut in nightgowns such a humming horde spring to pant and struggle over the festival fringe livestock enclosure whilst nosy folk out of every window hang and beat their heads on all the high-spirited fuss, fun, and tones of writing with no particular purpose or direction. So with, with all those sort of drunken hordes clambering over the underbelly of Edinburgh, Murray's got a fairly cynical view in part there about the festival and what it does to the town. Carrie, do you, do you share any of that cynicism? Or? No, I, th- I, I adore the festival. I think it's, it's the most wonderful thing in the history of the world. I love, I love Edinburgh, the vibrancy. It's just colourful. There are people from all over the world descending into this city for the month of August. It's brilliant. And the shopping thing, you know, if, if if you haven't planned your shop to not go down Printer Street on a Saturday, then you're a bit of a knobhead. Yeah, <laughs> if you haven't planned to leave Edinburgh for three and a half weeks and let your flat out yeah. for £2,000 a week. Uh, uh, 3000 mine Yay, cost me. Well I, I, can't, I swear to God, I, I phoned up the person who uh, whose flat it was and she was going, uh, is it possible for you to wire me the money today so I'm booking a flight to the Bahamas? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm paying for your holiday. But then it's great because it's a nice flat and I'm enjoying the city and I'm going to go and see something. There's great things happening. It's not just the fringe. It's the, the festival. There's the, the Warhol exhibition. There's book the book festival. festival. It's great. I saw Tom Hanks two days ago. Tom Hanks. Yeah, I saw him wandering around. And I was like, a cab. Yeah. Yeah. I did not see me behind him going, Tom. <laughs> it's great the amount of people who come here. It's brilliant. That's, I think that's all from us, isn't it? That's all from us for this year, at least. Yeah, we're, we're out of the door. The last heckle. And just time to thank our guests, Carrie Quinlan, Stephen K. Amos and Leo Benedictus. And we hope you enjoyed our heckles. If you missed any, they're still on the Guardian website, guardian.co.uk slash Edinburgh 2007. Thanks to the production team, Andy Dixon, Nell Bowes, Phil Maynard and Jim Anthony. I've been Lucy Porter. And I've not been Brian Logan. No, you've been Pascal Wise. (laughs) The programmes are produced by Ben Walker and Francesca Panetta. So until next August, from all of us here, goodbye. Guardian Unlimited.